The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Once again, it's a privilege to come to God's Word this morning on Palm Sunday. We're turning to the Gospel of Luke. I decided that we'd preach both this Sunday, Palm Sunday, and next Sunday, Easter, from the Gospel of Luke, since our associate pastors have been preaching in that Gospel for the last several months. So we'll look at two roads this week and next week. This week, Jesus, as he walks the road into Jerusalem on a donkey, and next week, as Jesus walks the road to Emmaus, with two as his disciples with the resurrection behind him. In one sense, Luke's account of Palm Sunday may be a bit disappointing to to some. After all, it doesn't include some of the classic details. There's no mention of palm branches, which are mentioned in each of the other three gospels. There's no cry of Hosanna like the other gospels mention. And Luke most likely leaves out these details of uh, cry of Hosanna and palm branches because of uh, he is primarily writing to a Gentile audience, and a Gentile audience wouldn't have understood the strong messianic association of a cry Hosanna to the son of David. But Luke's account, what it does preserve so well, is the clear picture of Jesus asserting himself as the king. And quickly, his disciples and the crowds all recognize this. And so we'll read together Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 40. I'd encourage you to read along with me as we read this account of Jesus, the coming of the long-awaited king. Would you follow with me as we read Luke 19, 28 to 40? And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away, and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice And praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Let's pray. God, how we thank you for your word. 
What a blessing it is to us. Would your spirit speak to us this morning? Strengthen us with your word for the glory of our King, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. It was, I think, almost exactly three years ago, maybe even this week, that I drove up to the church on a a sunny April morning, expecting another day in the life of the youth pastor of Westminster Presbyterian Church. But instead, on this April morning in 2017, I found the south parking lot of our building packed. Every space was taken. And in fact, the parking lot was coned off with orange parking cones. That was surprising. But what was more unnerving was the black windowless Mercedes van that was parked under the carport with security guards stationed at each of the entrances around that end of the building. When we see this kind of activity or excitement or protection, the first question we ask is, what is going on? And who's here that requires security personnel at the doors of Westminster Presbyterian Church when none of us even knew anything was happening? It would be an exaggeration to say none of us knew anything was happening. Michael Plouts, our church administrator, I think knew what was happening. But in this situation, one of the organizations that helps with refugee resettlement here in Lancaster was hosting their annual banquet in our gym, and they brought in a surprise guest speaker that year. It was 19-year-old Malala Yousafzai, the youngest ever recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize. At that point, uh, she was world-renowned. She was an outspoken Pakistani teen for freedom and rights, and here she was in Lancaster, in the gym of Westminster Presbyterian Church. She travels everywhere, or at least at that point traveled everywhere with a security detail, and none of her travel plans could be announced ahead of time because of the threats against her life. Well, of course, we feel important just to be near someone of national renown, a teenage Nobel Prize winner. And uh, of course, in, in my crowning moment of the morning, I got to point her to the room she was looking for to rest after she spoke. Well, put yourself now, 2,000 years ago, on the road into Jerusalem. It was the week leading up to the Passover festival. And so people from all over Israel would have been traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. It's a time that was filled with expectation and joy and gladness. It would have been filled perhaps with singing. Maybe people would have been reciting the Psalms of Ascents as they headed up to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. But this year, in the midst of the usual joy, a crowd begins to gather in one section of the road coming down from the Mount of Olives. And as you see this crowd gathering, you start to hear snippets of what they're saying. You hear Hosanna. You hear the word King. And so you rush over to see what's happening. And Matthew, in his gospel account, says that the whole city was stirred at this, asking, who is this? Well, the easy answer to the question is, well, it's Jesus. It's Jesus of Nazareth. But as Dr. Light preached last week, there were many opinions on who Jesus actually was. Was he John the Baptist, risen from the dead? Was he Elijah? Was he another one of the prophets of old? And today also there might be many opinions on who Jesus is. A moral teacher, a good man, or maybe an outdated teacher or an irrelevant man. 
But Jesus orchestrates the events of this episode, this entry into Jerusalem, in such a way that forces the Jewish people around him and any of us reading this story to ask and to answer this question, who is this Jesus? And as we look at the story this morning, I think this text gives us two answers to this question. Jesus first demonstrates that he is divine, and then he declares that he is the long-awaited king. Let's look at each of these in the text this morning. First of all, if you look at verses 28 to 34, the first six verses of this passage, Jesus demonstrates that he is divine. The whole episode begins with Jesus on his way up to Jerusalem at the beginning of the Passover feast. He's going up with many, many others. But on his way, he arrives at two small towns, Bethany and Bethpage, at the Mount of Olives, and he begins to put things into motion for his entry into Jerusalem. And in doing so, he demonstrates his divine knowledge of all things. He tells his disciples exactly where to go. He tells them exactly what they will find there with unique details. He says, go into the village in front of you, and just when you enter it, you'll find a donkey. Not just any donkey, the cult of a donkey. Not just any cult, but one that no one has ever sat on. He predicts the objection of the owners. What are you doing untying that cult? And he gives them the response that they should respond with. The Lord has need of it. Now, when we hear these details, the skeptical mind says, well, sure, he told them where to find the cult. He told them, you know, what to answer when someone asked why they were untying it. Clearly, he just arranged all these details the day before, and everyone kind of knew what to expect. But even if you imagine him trying to establish the details the day before, you can't set everything up perfectly. There are crowds around, as Mark mentions, who question the disciples. Details can go wrong. And of course, you have the very fact that the owners ask the disciples what they're doing with this donkey. If everything was set up beforehand, there wouldn't be any need for them to ask, why are you untying my donkey? Luke emphasizes the fact that Jesus' divine knowledge is in play when he summarizes this way. He says, so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. But of course, if we're going to talk about Jesus knowing all things ahead of time of his perfect divine knowledge, this episode isn't unique. All through the gospel narratives, we found Jesus demonstrating his divine knowledge. Jesus saw Nathanael under a fig tree, even when he wasn't there with him. Jesus knew the thoughts of the Pharisees before they spoke. Jesus knew from the beginning who would believe in him and who would betray him, John tells us. This week, maybe you think of Peter. Jesus knew Peter would betray him and that a rooster would crow. Jesus knows all things even before they happen or are spoken. And yet, even beyond simple knowledge, these verses also give us a glimpse of Jesus' divine authority and control. Because Jesus doesn't just know what's going to happen, he's actually in control of what's happening. He's the one setting these events into motion. He's the one who sends the disciples on their donkey mission. He's the one who directs his ride on the donkey into Jerusalem. He's the one who sets up this royal messianic procession that pushes people to either sing with joy at his approach or to grumble and urge him to shut down the voices of his disciples. 
See, these verses are, if you will, sort of the the backstage movements that are going to set up the main events in this passage. And yet they clearly demonstrate that Jesus is divine, both in his knowledge of all things and in his control, as he's the one who sets these things into motion. Maybe just pause for a minute and reflect on Jesus' divine knowledge of all things, things that have not happened yet, things that are unspoken. The 19th century writer J.C. Ryle puts it so well when he says of this episode, he says, when we see Jesus in this story and his perfect divine knowledge of all things, it should awaken sinners to repentance and it should bring comfort to all believers. It should awaken sinners to repentance because there is no sin hidden from the sight of our Savior. The Jesus who knows that a donkey has never been ridden on before knows our thoughts and our deeds. You know, as humans, we're, we're highly adept at presenting a, a careful presentation of ourselves to others. We hide our flaws. We keep our sins out of sight. We do impressive things to help others and present a positive and uplifting appearance. But Jesus, in his divine knowledge, knows all things. He knows our hearts. He knows the secret sins of our thoughts. And if the judge of all sees all, and if the just judgment on sin and trying to manage our life our way rather than in dependence on God's way, if the just punishment for that is separation from God forever, then our heart's immediate response should be repentance and running to the only source of forgiveness and salvation that God offers, faith in the name of Jesus. But on the flip side, if our hearts have put our trust in Jesus, if he is our Savior, then we have a clear demonstration that Jesus knows every details of our lives before they happen. And what could be more comforting than that? Jesus knows every temptation that we will face. He knows every need that we have. He knows every daily trial that presses us and pulls us. Jesus knew every impact of the coronavirus before it ever sprouted from a fish in the market in Wuhan. And not only does Jesus know everything, but he has control over everything, which he is directing constantly with a view to the care and the salvation of his people. So who is this Jesus? First, this story shows us that he is divine, perfectly knowing all things and directing all things for his glory and for the good of his people. But the significance of this text really comes to the forefront once Jesus has the details in order. And so look next with me at verses 35 to 40, where we see Jesus as he declares that he is God's long-awaited king. You know, when you and I read this story, this story of of people shouting Hosanna and laying cloaks and palm branches at the feet of Jesus, we find a great story for the Easter season. You know, donkeys and palm branches make great props and setups for children's Sunday school stories in this season. But if you were an Israelite, this story explodes with significance. And if Jesus is intentionally directing these events, you would know that he was making an extraordinary claim. See, For generations, Israel had awaited God's promised king. Ever since David sat on the throne almost exactly a thousand years before this time when Jesus arrived, God had promised that he would establish the kingdom and the throne of David forever. But when Israel rejected God and an exile came, God sent his prophets to keep alive this hope that a descendant of David would still sit on the throne 
that God's Messiah would return and restore the fortunes of God's people. You think maybe of the prophet Jeremiah, who said in chapter 23, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king, and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. Can you see why Israel was so eagerly waiting this king? In his days, Judah would be saved and Israel would dwell securely. In his rule, justice and righteousness would be restored. Well, after 70 years of exile, a remnant of God's people did return to Jerusalem. And while this return was a clear fulfillment of God's promise, no descendant of David was yet on the throne. The glory of Israel was not restored. Israel did not yet dwell securely in righteousness and justice. But God again sent one of his prophets, and Zechariah came to his people to remind them that the promised king was still coming. And in chapter 9, Zechariah declares, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. Over the next 500 years, tossed between rival world powers, Israel longed for rescue and salvation, for security from foreign threats, for righteousness and justice in the face of oppression and suffering. And as Israel waited generation after generation, many of the Psalms began to take on a new significance for God's people, a new significance as they waited for this promised king. Psalm 118 was one such psalm that took on a new significance. Verse 26 proclaims, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This psalm was originally sung when the king of Israel came to the temple and was greeted by the priests outside the temple. But Israel became more and more over these generations to identify these words as the cry that would go up when the descendant of David, the king they were waiting for, would once again return to Jerusalem. So when Jesus asks for a donkey, the cult, the foal of a donkey, and begins to ride from the Mount of Olives, which itself had significance for the day of the Lord from another prophecy in Zechariah, when he begins to ride from the Mount of Olives on a donkey into Jerusalem, he's making an extraordinary claim. He is doing what the Messiah does. He is doing what the son of David was going to do. He was doing what the king was prophesied to do. And nobody in the whole story misses the point. You see, Jesus' disciples, they immediately get the point. When Jesus initiates this moment, the disciples bring their cloaks and they set Jesus on their cloaks on the donkey. A king doesn't ride a dirty animal bareback. And then they spread their cloaks on the road, offering a royal welcome for the king whose glory must not tread on an ordinary dusty ground. The procession may have started with a small band of Jesus' disciples, maybe even just the twelve, but soon a whole crowd joins the procession. And the whole crowd immediately gets what Jesus is going to do as well. 
In fact, uh, verse 37 says that the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. But then do you know what, notice what happens there in verse 38? In verse 38, the whole multitude of disciples begin to take up those words from Psalm 118, 26, those words that Israel had taken to, to be reserved for the coming king when he would return to Jerusalem, and they start to shout, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they add their description of the messianic hope, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The multitude of disciples are affirming their belief in Jesus' claim. Yes, he is God's king. Well, of course, the Pharisees, they don't miss the point either. They get exactly what Jesus is claiming. They come up with just the sort of brisk and grumbly confrontation we'd expect from them. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Not, you know, hey, Jesus, don't you think this is a little overblown? Or, Jesus, do you realize you're doing something that's kind of similar to what the Messiah is doing, so you might want to hold it back a little? No, teacher, rebuke your disciples. We'll test your orthodoxy by how quickly you tell your disciples to stop claiming you're the Messiah. Well, Jesus adds a further layer of confirmation to this whole point, saying to the Pharisees, If my disciples don't proclaim the truth about me, the very stones will shout it out. As one commentator puts it, Jesus' response is essentially saying, if human beings stop singing my praise, he will still have the glory he deserves. For creation itself, the very stones on the mountainside, will join the choir. What an ironic and grievous statement, isn't it? Even lifeless stones are aware of who Jesus is, and yet the leaders of God's people are not. And so we can begin to see the importance of this story. I may have been amazed to find Malala Yousafzai down hanging out in our church gym, but that is nothing compared to the fulfillment of centuries of expectation and longing. That is nothing compared to the arrival of God's promised king. That is nothing compared to the arrival of the one whom God has promised would bring salvation, comfort, security, and hope for his people. And that's what Jesus is announcing about himself here in this text. Phil Riken summarizes it this way. He said, this moment was the culmination of everything Jesus' disciples had been hoping for. The proof that Jesus was the Christ. They had seen him heal the sick. They had seen him cure the blind. They had seen him raise the dead. They'd heard him preach the good news of the kingdom of God. They had heard him offer forgiveness of sins through repentance. But now, as Jesus rode this royal mile into the holy city, they could see even more clearly, Jesus was the king. Who is this Jesus? Jesus declares that he is God's promised, long-awaited king. And when we understand that declaration, we begin to understand the overwhelming power and joy and excitement and expectation that fills the crowds and fills the narrative of this story. I want to pause for a moment to consider what it means to say that Jesus is our king. After all, you and I live in a democracy. We love freedom. We live in a land that still celebrates kicking out a king 250 years ago. 
So sometimes it can be difficult for us to understand what it means to find the joy and comfort of having a king. But God's king is the greatest blessing that God's people could ever receive. See, on the one hand, as king, Jesus comes with the power and authority to protect his people, provide his people, defend his people, and care for his people. The king was the one who was endowed with the resources and the authority that he needed to address the needs and the fears of the people that he was there to protect. And this is why all throughout history, the presence of the king was always a comfort and a source of hope. But of course, Jesus isn't just a king. He is the king. He is the king of heaven. All kings and princes were to tremble before this king, and his power and authority were absolute, according to Psalm 2. This king would come with all wisdom and righteousness. This king would bring the restoration of peace and well-being and flourishing of mankind that had been longed for ever since the Garden of Eden, according to Isaiah chapter 11. Of course, we're still living in the time that theologians call the already but not yet. And so we don't yet see the perfect and final fulfillment of this salvation as we still live in this fallen world. But Jesus is on the throne and he is perfectly caring for us and guiding us through this world toward our eternity with him forever. Jesus is our king. What a timely reminder for us. Because right now, our fears go in so many different directions. There's economic uncertainty. Many of you may have lost jobs or seen your hours cut back. Others of you are not sure what's coming. If this is an extended shutdown, how will this impact my family? There's political insecurity and fears. What is our government doing? Are we losing rights and freedoms in the face of this crisis? Are poor decisions or surveillance in government authority exercised in a time of crisis undermining our country as we know it? There's personal insecurity. What if I get sick? What if I lose a loved one? Or even just in the decisions and routines of our life, what's going to happen with my graduation? How will my college plans be impacted by this? Can I survive months with my kids bouncing off the walls with nowhere to go? These are fears and insecurities we have. But in the face of this, we see Jesus arriving as the king, the king endowed with all the resources, all the power, the majesty, the authority, the sovereignty, the righteousness, the goodness of the God of the universe to care for his people and bring us safely to our final hope. Palm Sunday was the announcement of the arrival of the king, but this king is still on his throne. He is still there protecting and providing for his people. On the other hand, as king, Jesus deserves our loyalty, our worship, our obedience, our trust. Jesus, of course, is not just our king if we choose him. There's not like a primary election cycle for king. Now, Jesus is the king. He is son of God. He is creator. He is the rightful heir of all things, and he deserves our worship, our obedience, and our trust. This is why the very stones would cry out in his praise if humans failed to honor him. And if even inanimate chunks of rock would praise him, how much more ought we and our hearts readily and eagerly submit to him and give him all praise and honor and glory? This is certainly not the main point of this passage, but I love the example of the owners of the donkey 
in this story. Here they are. I don't know what they were doing on this Palm Sunday morning, but here come two guys down the street and they grab their donkey and start to walk away. I know what I would have been thinking. And yet they say, why are you untying my donkey? But as soon as they hear the Lord has need of him, they let their donkey go. What a great expression of obedience and trust the one who has put himself at the service of the king. And so my prayer for my own heart this morning is this. If Jesus needs my time, if Jesus needs my money, if Jesus needs my efforts, or if Jesus needs my donkey, may my heart readily give them freely in service to my king. Well, let me close with one final point about this story. I want us to see one last beautiful truth about Jesus' ride into Jerusalem. In Luke 19 on Palm Sunday, Jesus' arrival as the long-awaited king was briefly on display. But this was not the arrival most of the Israelites were expecting. This was Jesus' first arrival, but the goal of this arrival was to die on a cross. The goal of this arrival was not to assert his authority, but to lay his life down for his people. But while that was the goal of his first arrival, Jesus is coming again. And while the first time he came riding on a donkey, he will come the second time riding on the clouds of heaven. While he came the first time humble, riding on the colt, he will come the second time in all his glory to end death and evil and bring us into his eternal kingdom that we might live and reign with him forever. I want to end with this beautiful description from J.C. Ryle. He says this. He says, Let us leave this whole passage with this cheering reflection that the joy of Christ's disciples on his entry into Jerusalem when he came to be crucified will prove as nothing compared to the joy of his people when he comes to reign forever. The first joy was soon broken off and exchanged for sorrow and bitter tears. The second joy shall be joy forevermore. The first joy was often interrupted by the bitter sneers of enemies who plotted mischief. The second joy will be liable to no such interruptions. Not a word shall be said against the king when he comes to Jerusalem the second time. No, but before him every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Who is this Jesus? He is the king. The king who is with us now and the king who will come again to save us forever. Thank God for sending this king. Let's pray. Oh, Father, it is perhaps hard for us to understand the ache and the longing that God's people felt for centuries as they awaited the arrival of your king. And so perhaps it's difficult for us to understand the explosion of joy and anticipation when Jesus rode that donkey into Jerusalem and the people shouted, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But God, it is not hard for us to fathom what it is to know a Savior because by your grace, Through the work of your spirit, you have called us to know this king. You have offered this king to us as Savior and Lord. And so I pray, Father, that our hearts would rejoice and that our hearts would ache with longing for your return, 
for you to come again and to bring your kingdom in final fulfillment for the glory of your name and for the fulfillment of our hope forevermore. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.